Yeah, right? Isn't that what you come for? Good, good fellowship. Exhorting one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. <clears throat> I have the audacity to talk to you tonight about uh, loving your family. How to love your family. Um, <laughs> what am I going to say? Well, you know, Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and says, um, nobody needs to tell you how to love one another there because you know how to do it. You do such a good job. But I exhort you to do it that much more. <laughs> and I suppose that's what I'm going to do tonight. Um, let me remind you, if you didn't already know, how prominent a place in, uh, in, in Christian character this uh, fruit of the Spirit, love, is, um, is seen. You remember Romans, and Paul writes in Romans, that owe no man anything except to love one another. Love is, a man loves his brother who fulfills the whole law. Um, in John 13, you remember Jesus even said that it was a mark of the church, if I may be so bold as to add it to those traditional marks of the true church. But Jesus himself said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, because you have love one for another. And then in the 1 Corinthians 13 passage, you know, at the last verse, Paul reminds us, and now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So it, uh, it fits not only in a prominent place, but sort of at the top of the list. The first named of the fruit of the Spirit gives to us a hint as to its importance if we needed that. So there are a couple of things I want to share with you. One is, is taking just another glance at Ephesians 5, but we're not going to stay there too long, uh, and see it in a little different light, I think. Uh, reading some familiar verses to you about um, the husband and wife relationship, verse 22 and following. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Thus far on this uh, passage, reminder. Now you see, we are affected probably more than we realize by attitudes in the society around us. And uh, I find too much, maybe cowboy mentality, among uh, conservative Christians at this point. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean. I know a man who knows uh, the Word of God and uh, is considered by many a mature Christian who has this sort of an application of the passage I've just read. And to lesser degrees, I've seen it in other Christian homes, unfortunately. He sees that since the wife is called to be subject to her husband that it's sort of his duty to see to it that she is. And uh, so he has to, he says, discipline her sometimes. 
And uh, when it came to physical discipline, uh, there needed to be a stop put to it. But this is a fellow who is a mature Christian, presumably, in some people's views. I don't know what happens behind people's closed doors, but I do want to point out that that's not what the passage is telling the husband to do. I want you to see the passage in a different way. See, the traditional role is sort of, dad is the head of the home, isn't he? Uh, he shows the tough side, you know. Just wait till dad comes home. <laughs> He's the disciplinarian. He's going to teach those children to submit to authority. And uh, mom's role, you see, well, she's, she's soft and sweet. And she's forgiving and understanding, uh, easier to talk to. She's the one who teaches the kids how to love, see. She's, she's the sweet. But I want to submit to you a, a suggestion that you look at Ephesians 5 from the modeling concept. What do the children see in the roles of the parents? And I suggest that the roles are exactly reversed when you see it that way. You see, God has called the husbands to love their wives and not just love their wives because at one point or another in their life, the wife has always been able to worm out of the husband the words, I love you. And even if it's hard to remember the last time, it does happen sometime at least before the altar. But um, the role of dad is to be that model of love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. Not just love, but a special kind of love. A totally self-giving love. So, I want to submit to you that the kids in a home are supposed to learn by what they see. And the model that shows them what love really is is supposed to be the Christian husband as he loves their mother, as Christ loved the church. That's where they learn about love. And the mom, well, she doesn't have to stop being soft and sweet, <laughs> forgiving and understanding and all of that, but I want to suggest that as far as model is concerned, she's the one that also shows the kids what it means to submit to authority by her example. It's not a matter of, after Dad goes to work, I'll let you... Uh, do that anyway and he just won't, doesn't have to know about it and then maybe sees her doing the same thing going behind dad's back and buying those clothes or whatever it is that he wishes she didn't do uh, the kids see instead of seeing submission to authority then as a model they see how to worm your way around and manipulate people to get your own way from that kind of a mother. Look at Ephesians 5 from a modeling perspective, and I think you get a different view of the role of husband and wife. Actually, I think it's uh, closer to the biblical model than what is often traditional in, um, hmm, what should I say, conservative homes. Let me use that term. But I wanted to especially uh, focus attention on... Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 
Yeah, I know. It's been overworked. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me try it again. <laughs> and again, I want, I, want to have, I want to look at it a little different perspective. Just a little different. Because I think so often we read Scripture and, uh, and, and, it, and look at it with some, a, a breadth that um, keeps us from being specific when it's going to hurt. 1 Corinthians 13 is a great chapter to teach a church how to love one another. And we need to keep it prominent for that reason. Uh, we at camp need to, need to work on this and everybody love one another, especially when you get problems getting in the shower and it's always cold when you get in there and somebody's been in there 10 minutes too long before you got there and things like that. Sure, we need that, but... Let's just tonight think about 1 Corinthians 13 as it works in the members of family in your home. Think about it specifically there. If it works for the Christian community in general, then it's certainly got to be an appropriate application for this home specifically. Now, just focusing at those verses that describe love, give us a description of it. Verses 4 through 7. And uh, those um, very brief descriptions. It's interesting, the Bible does not spend a lot of time defining. Very seldom do you find definitions so much as descriptions that get um, just like this one here. Give us the picture. And then we can perhaps, even without a definition, understand it. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. Love is patient. Now, this is a word that suggests more patient with people rather than circumstances, although perhaps we need both. Long-suffering in some translations. You know, I'm thinking we don't have a difficult time showing patience to, uh, to strangers. We can show them courtesy go out of our way to do that sometimes, especially if we want to make a good first impression on someone. Uh, maybe someone even for business purposes. You can be very patient with um, some stupidity or something else on their part. But when we're at home, we relax and we don't show that kind of patience anymore. We can be miles more patient with absolute strangers than with members of our own family. But the fact that we can be proves that we can do it if we try. Patience among members of the family. Love is kind, Paul says. This is an expression of the specific outworking of a good disposition of heart. Uh, kindness is talking about doing something, deeds that are done. And so I just want to uh, suggest do you do favors for other members of the family? Not just to pay them back for something they've done for you, but do you initiate the debt, as it were, of gratitude? Uh, parents to children, children to parents, brothers and sisters to each other. But when was the last time you did a favor for no particular reason, not because you wanted to ask for something, but you just did a favor because you loved your parents or you loved your brother or sister? Love does that, the Bible says. Real love works that way. 
and even does good to those who ill-treat it. Um, Leon Morris suggests this in the word. Uh, love is uh, not jealous, he goes on to say, verse 4. Love is not jealous or envious. Uh, you know, jealousy, of course, speaks very of self-centeredness, a possessive self-love that's jealous because it fears the threat of not being first anymore. Uh, do you ever hear these words in your home? That's not fair. <laughs> that comes from a form of enviousness. Somebody got something that I didn't get, and that's not fair. We don't mean it's not fair. We mean I didn't get top position. I didn't get top billing. That's what we usually mean by that. Love does not brag, says in the version I'm using here, New American Standard. The reason love doesn't brag, and for a lot of these the terms that are here, is because love, we begin to get the picture, is really focused on, on the person loved, not focused on the oneself. Love is self-giving, not self-aggrandizing. It's desirous for the good of the person that's loved. So, in the home, we need that kind of an expression of love. Not only is there not bragging, but the opposite, the need to build up each other in the home. Words that minister grace to the hearers. He says and very closely associated with the thought, no doubt, in verse 4, also at the end, uh, love is not arrogant. Uh, beyond bragging, we learn how to manipulate people with a guilt trip, um, with the force of um, anger, perhaps. I better do this, or so-and-so is going to be angry. Um, with piety, that's probably the worst of them all. Um, some uh, feigned form of piety we use to bend someone else's will to ours. The battle of the sexes, perhaps, can be seen in this category, not arrogant. The battle of the sexes still goes on in many homes and sometimes in Christian homes the attempt at one-upsmanship or putting down one another simply because we need to prove who's top dog in this family, the male or the female, who's really got it together, who's got the smarts, who remembers the most, or whatever the game might be. Another term that's used in verse 5, does not act unbecomingly inappropriate or offensive behavior. And that, of course, has to be measured on the part of the individual who's being offended, the part of the beloved. Take, for example, teasing. There's good teasing and there's bad teasing. Do you know how to tell the difference? Ask the person who's being teased. If you really want to know does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own. Well, that really sums up a lot of them that have already been said. Again, the very nature of biblical love is that it's self-giving, 
not self-seeking. Uh, think of what Paul writes in Philippians 2, having the mind of Christ, uh, to consider others more important than yourself. There's a neat one to try to apply at home, huh? Consider others more important than yourself. Now, dads, remember at Ephesians 5, we saw that you're the model for this. You're the one that's called to show the model of love by the way you treat your wife. How often have you deliberately brought yourself to make decisions or make responses verbally or otherwise in a home that have reflected the fact that you were considering your wife more important than yourself? I think that's what the Bible says. Philip's version translates this one, not touchy. (laughs) Not touchy. Anybody in your home touchy? Okay, not provoked, not easily provoked. This one just says, I think, not uh, is not provoked. Uh, let's a lot go by without holding a grudge. Does not like to harbor that sense of injury. And the next one probably closely associated also. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Uh, I think uh, today's English version, we used to call that the two-bit Bible when you could buy a New Testament for a quarter in the TEV. The TEV, I think, says uh, doesn't keep a score of wrongs. This will destroy a marriage, won't it? Keeping a score of wrongs. Uh, It always frightens me if somebody ever says something like this to me, and I'm so glad my wife has never said it to me. I don't know what it would do, a home life. But when somebody says, well, I'll forgive you this time, but it hadn't better happen again. That's terrifying to me. Doesn't keep a score of wrongs. That's what love love is like. Keeping a mental book to use as a weapon later on. Where does turning the other cheek fit into the Christian home? Right about here, I think. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. He says, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Yeah, there's turning the other cheek, you see, but there's also a matter of right is right, and because God says it's right. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. There is a place in the Christian home for tough love. It is not correct for a wife or a husband, for that matter, to just be a doormat while the individual continues to criminally assault them. That needs to be reported. If it's literal assault, it needs to be reported to the uh, authorities. Tough love has a place, and it's understood in this relationship. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Right is right because God says it's right. The one we put above wife, husband, and children is our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, even if it means persecution for righteousness' sake, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It's not my family right or wrong then, see. We cannot and must not afford to be enablers of 
wicked behavior. Well, they come in, a, in tandem, these two. Does not rejoice in righteous, unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It's, of course, God's truth and every derived truth from that that we're talking about. And just at this point, all I want to say is uh, maybe here is a good place to uh, take note of the fact that the loving leadership in a Christian home just has to make time for family devotions. God's truth is found there. And uh, that will set the tone and the pace and uh, provide the the potency for the family to live as a loving family. Bears all things. Again, the basic idea is to cover here. Uh, Puts up with a lot of garbage without walking out. (laughs) I I have to confess, uh, (laughs) last night um, when I was taking care of my grandson and we had him sing at our house, I was enjoying him, and uh, he volunteered to throw up on me (laughs) three times. But it's so easy to love a grandchild. (laughs) But I thought, this isn't bothering me. I can put up with this all night long. You know, you can always take a shower. (laughs) So we do that with the little ones. But what about... Maybe figuratively speaking, we're taking that kind of thing from another member of the family who is a little old to be dumping on us. Bears all things, says the Apostle. Bears all things. Love covers a multitude of sins. For a good reason, you see. Because somebody bore with our sins far more than we could ever imagine. And that Jesus, who did that, gave us a parable. You remember about this servant that owed so much? I forget what it computes to, a couple million dollars, three million, something like that. The slave owed that much money to the master, and the master says, hey, sell him in a whole household, sell each of them on the block, I'll get some money back from him anyway. And he falls down and says, oh, master, be patient with me, and I'll pay back everything. Are you kidding? Three million bucks, I'm not going. But the master has compassion on him. And just out of that compassion, he forgives him the debt. He doesn't say, okay, I won't sell you. He says, I forgive you the whole debt. And he felt so good. He went out, and you can see, if he'd never done it before, he could click his heels together, leaping in the air. And... But it didn't work out that way. He went out all right, but he found somebody else that owed him 10 bucks. Or maybe it was 25, it's inflation. I don't remember how it translates. But at any rate... You know the story, the same words Jesus puts in this debtor's mouth. Be patient with me and I'll pay you all. He says, no, you're going to debtor's prison. Well, when the others reported back to the king, you know, back to the uh, master, um, he, uh, he revoked his forgiveness. And uh, Jesus says, that's the way it is with us if we don't forgive everyone from our hearts. You see, because there's a basic rule of, that we all understand of, of uh, appropriate gratitude. When somebody does a tremendous favor for you, you're supposed to be so, and you sense what it really is, you feel a great relief and a great joy. If somebody's forgiven you a tremendous debt, then uh, those who might owe you $10, what is that? No big deal. 
and it just doesn't seem right that an individual should do that. What Jesus, of course, is doing is making us recognize if we understand what it is to be captured by sovereign grace, to have a holy God love us so much to bring us into his presence by the death of his own son, that price that was paid, then who owes me anything? I can bear all things if I have that kind of love living inside of me. And believes all things, all right, that doesn't mean we're supposed to be gullible, you know. How about when your teenage daughter comes and says, but daddy, why can't I go to the party? Don't you trust me? <laughs> Do you believe all things at that point? <laughs> now, come on, your daughters aren't old enough yet, Lynn, but you're anticipating the day, aren't you? <laughs> ah, yes, it'll come. Well, of course, there's balance. You say, yes, I trust you, my dear, but I, I know what human nature is like. I was your age once. You can't go to the party. <laughs> there's a realism there, too, you see. Believes all things. You see, I think there is a place, and perhaps far more places than we give to it in our Christian homes, uh, to put the best interpretation on things, on actions that people take, explanations they give, words that, uh, of response that they give. We get our choice every time somebody takes an action in our home to put a best or a worst interpretation on what they did or what they said. And you will be amazed when you monitor that action in somebody's home how frequently they come down the wrong side. And I think this applies to the home so dearly. Believes all things is certainly a matter of putting the best interpretation you can on certain events. Now you say, wait a minute, I don't want my kids to play me for a fool. I don't want to be an enabler for them to be uh, uh, pathological liars when they grow up and think that they can just tell me any story they want to and they get away with it. No, of course you don't want to do that. But I believe that if you make it a rule to put the best interpretation on things and then trust the God of providence to bring to your attention enough evidence to uh, really convict the, the guilty party, you'll find out when your child is, going, is lying to you. You may not find out every time. They may get away with it a few times. But if you come down strong enough when the, the lying is convicted proof, um, then uh, I believe that uh, you will have found a good balance. We need to be realistic but we also need to learn how to give the benefit of the doubt. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Hope, of course, is looking to the future. Anticipating good things. And as I apply that to the home, legitimately or not, I want to do it this way. Anticipating good things from other members of the household. Loved ones, I believe, will tend, now notice the word I'm using, will tend uh, to live up to the expectations of their loving members of the family, and particularly of dad, the leader in this regard. Your loving expectation of excellence will encourage them to make it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because of the strength of your love, they will not want to disappoint you. Fathers, haven't you discovered that's the secret of, 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 of corporal punishment in your home? 
It's not the pain of, of giving a blister on the behind that makes them stop wanting to do uh, the activity that you're disciplining. It's the fact that you've loved them so and built up that rapport of love so strongly that the fact that, that you would do such a thing to them bothers them. It's after the pain wears off, there's still a pain there that there was that kind of a response to their behavior. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Providence, persecution, personal failure, and perversity. All of these will produce great pain Catching a little livestock here. Love gets you through it all together. As a matter of fact, you see, I think when you suffer, I have a little a little maxim. I mean, it's not famous, and maybe I made it up, but I think the the family that suffers together is the family that stays together when they really do it together. As a matter of fact, the family that goes through any significant experience together is the one that stays together. Now, this has just been a little rambling homily. So we look through um, briefly through these few verses. And uh, I hope if you thought seriously about those with me, that uh, some things are coming to your mind. Like um, uh, you hit on a point or two that, uh, that aren't so good in my home. And uh, good. I'm glad. Maybe the Holy Spirit uh, is the one that's making you feel that way, think that way. But you see, 1 Corinthians 13 is really not an exhortation in this section. It's a description. It doesn't tell us, try harder to do these things, like some moralistic harangue. It's just simply saying, Here's what Christian love is. If you have Christian love, this is what you're going to be like. And so, when I get to my... If you happen to notice the outline there, some extremely clever point for the third one, engineering the, third, engineering the, um, the Christian family. The first thing I want to point out is that... Um, you can't just try harder. When you see that you've found, you're found lacking in these things, that somehow the description of love doesn't fit you as well as you wish it did, that there's some shortfall in your life or in your home. Well, a few obvious things. As with any sin, the first thing you do is repent and change. It sounds simple. It's hard to do, perhaps, in some time. Repent and change, of course, is the solution. Bring forth fruits fitting for repentance, says John the Baptist. <laughs> How do you do that? Well, in your home, I want to suggest this. And dads, remember, I'm talking especially to you. You're the model. Confess your sin to members of the family against whom you have sinned. And ask them to forgive you. And if that's not hard enough, then the next step is simply this. You ask the family members to monitor your progress in changing your behavior and help you. 
They can give you body language or uh, audible signals, perhaps. And when it works that way, uh, then you're working sort of as a team, see, to tackle this problem instead of just picking on Dad or whoever it might be that's asking for help to overcome short-temperedness or uh, whatever it may be, impatience, self-centeredness. But we still haven't come to the bottom line because it's just not going to work in your home unless this is true. It's Christ in you who is the hope of glory. It's Jesus Christ living in you it is only the only way you're going to have the effective power to change and to live the life of love in the Christian home that's described here. If Jesus really comes into your life, if Jesus is really there and living His life through you, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Then, of course, this is His character. Loving. He is loving. Remember John 13 opens, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. He's forgiving. Remember in John 21, when Jesus speaks directly to Peter three times, Do you love Me, Peter? Feed My sheep. And Peter can think, of course he's hurt because he's asked Him three times that's how many times he denied his Lord. But you see, Jesus is singling him out. And Jesus not only pinpoints the recollection of his denial of his Savior, but also three times gives him a commission. I haven't given up on you, Peter. I'm not putting you on the shelf, Peter. Feed my sheep. Be a shepherd under me. He's forgiving, you see. And Jesus is accepting. Think of what Jesus does with the infamous woman at the well. The Bible tells us that he had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. Not geographically. There was a well-worn path that did not go through Samaria. You know that as well as I. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Well, so that what would happen, what happened would happen. And he met one woman, one lowly outcast woman at the well and gave her the water of life. Jesus is accepting, accepting of lowly people. And when He lives His life in us and through us, we're going to show more of His character. We're going to be like Jesus. God has predestined it that way. Remember Romans 8.29? Predestined that we should be conformed to the image of His Son. So the solution of our coming short of what real love is, is not simply to try harder. The solution is to learn how to live closer to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for giving us Your Son that our God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son Whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, we know that verse so well. But God, let it not be old and stale for us. 
Renew us in the fresh vigor and joy of the love of Jesus and teach us how to love the way he did. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. getting up, I had my five-year-old daughter asleep on my lap there. She didn't want to wake up. Let's uh, sing one song in closing. Let me also remind you that uh, we're having these evening uh, messages on the family. Uh, you, you notice on your pink uh, bulletins it's entitled Focus on the Family. I, it seemed like a catchy title. Right? You know, I don't know if anybody will ever use it again. But um, this, these were in response to uh, questionnaires that were handed out last year at family camp, and there's quite a bit of uh, interest in having family-oriented themes uh, in the evenings. And uh, so that is what, uh, the, uh, what's behind these uh, focus on the family messages. Uh, we hope you enjoy them. I hope they're profitable for you and your family. Let's... Uh, Let's turn in our hymnals. Let's turn in our hymnals. Let's turn in our hymnals to what? <laughs> 534, a voice calls out. All right, 534, sweet hour of prayer.
Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. You are dismissed. Dangerous move for a preacher. You move the pulpit out of the way. Uh, Before we begin, I have one protest I would like to raise. Uh, If you've seen the front of your little pink book that you were given, I'm very, very upset that the person who typed the uh, information on the front, uh, I do speak a little bit of French, and so I understand what potpourri is, but I hear lots of people talking about potpourri, And I looked at the four of us that were speaking, and I wondered if he was telling us something. It may be called a whole bunch of other things, too. Let me explain just before we begin and as we begin what we were attempting to do this week, at least as I understood my assignment, which perhaps will make you understand why the seating arrangement for tonight. We had talked as a board about having the services in the evening, uh, services that applied to the families and particularly made the family in worship be something where everybody felt they were to be part of worship. Mr. Wagner got the assignment of speaking directly to the teenagers and letting us listen in. I got the assignment of speaking to those who are not quite so tall as the teenagers. And so what we're going to do tonight is you and I are going to speak and I'm going to preach to you which will mean that I'll expect you to listen and behave. And we're going to let your parents listen in instead of the way you sometimes feel that you get to listen in on a sermon on Sunday morning. We're going to see if we can have your parents feel like the ones who are listening in. Pray with me. Lord, we begin this night and we come with hands that are so empty that we are ashamed. We do not have enough knowledge of your word. We do not have the eyes to see. We haven't learned the tools to be able to use your word. In fact, they are beyond us. But they always were after Adam and Eve fell. And so we plead that you will help us to understand tonight. To understand your word that will take your spirit in us. Father, we ask that your spirit will open our eyes and open your word so that your spirit applies your word to our hearts. And Jesus Christ is honored in what we say and do. In his name, amen. I don't know whether you understand what God intended parents to do. Some people think that parents are supposed to be big people who are supposed to always give those of us who are your size everything we want, or at least as much of it as we can get. As much attention as we want, as much time to watch TV, as many snacks, uh, a cold drink of water in the middle of the night, all of those things. Parents are supposed to do that. They're also supposed to provide all the clothes that we want, or at least enough for us to wear so that we're not embarrassed at school. But God says something else about parents, and he says it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so I'd like to read the first nine verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6 so we can get started on understanding what is it that God wants us to be as children. And as a matter of fact, what does God have in mind for us as children? 
The sermon was titled, God's Lessons for for Children. This is the commandment and the statute and the judgment which the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should, li- be, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land that flows with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and these words that I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the road, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as blinders on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You see, God said about your parents that He gave them a specific job to do. And that job wasn't to make sure that you were well fed. And it wasn't even to make sure that you were happy. The job that they were given was to teach you what God had done and what God had said. Your parents were to teach your neighbors. Your parents were to teach the people they worked with. They were to teach strangers. But principally, they were to teach you. Now, I don't know if you understand that that's why your parents say, at some time in the day, I hope, Let's have devotions together as a family. Because that's when your dad is supposed to teach you what God said. Your daddy's job is to teach you. And your mom's job is to help him teach you what God said. The things that he did. Some of those Bible stories I'm sure you know. The stories of how God brought his people out of Egypt. Of how he rescued Noah. The story of Daniel and how he cared for Daniel and for Daniel's friends. I'm sure you know those stories. You've heard them. But your parents were supposed to do more than teach you the stories of what had happened. Let me underline, just in case anybody might have a question. When I refer to a Bible story in the context of children, I'm referring to history, please. I'm referring to real events in real time, even if I call them stories right now, for children who don't have a concept of history. The Bible stories are important for you to know. But God didn't say to your parents that they were only supposed to teach you the stories. They were supposed to teach you the statutes. A statute is not something that's carved out of stone and stands there like this. A statute is a, statute is a law. They're supposed to teach you what God said you were supposed to do. Now, if they teach you what God said you were supposed to do, what's that going to do to you? Well, unless you're different from the children that were born to my wife and I, it's going to make you feel bad. Because if you're like they are and you're like I was, you are sinful. And that sinful means you're going to have to be disciplined sometimes. And you're going to have to be told that God said you may not do that. That's why mom and dad make the rules they do. You may not hit your brother, you may not tease your sisters. You may not pull somebody's hair. You may not throw water on a dog. 
all these things that you're not supposed to do, your parents are teaching you because God said they were supposed to teach you how to behave according to God's law. Your mom and dad didn't make them up. Well, maybe they made up some of them. But not many. Because God's law contains an awful lot of them. Things that we're supposed to do, whether we're big or small. God's Word, then, contains for us rules, laws. But your parents are supposed to do one other thing, too. One other thing that isn't really mentioned in this passage unless you understand what's supposed to happen when somebody teaches what God says we're supposed to do. You see, in Acts chapter 17, Paul went into Athens. And there he stood and he had a chance to teach. He had a chance to teach in what was called a school on Mars Hill. And there, as he taught there, he told the people what God had said they were supposed to do. And he left some of them in panic. If God said we were supposed to do this, and we not only didn't do that, but we did something else, then God's mad at us. And if God's mad at us, what's going to happen? Well, you know what happens if mom or dad's mad at you. How much worse is it if God's mad at you? And so your parents are also instructed by God to follow up on, all right, this is what God said you were supposed to do. You didn't do it. All right, what happens? What happens is that God asks you to repent of that sin. And your parents have to too. And your parents have to ask you to repent of that sin in order that you can find forgiveness for it. Because your sins aren't automatically forgiven just because you're not real tall yet. Your sins are forgiven by repentance just like mine are. Now, the word repent's a big word. I suppose I should explain it. The best way to explain it is to give you an example. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to leave. But I better not. So I'll go back and I'll do what I'm supposed to do. That's what repent means. It means to turn around. I was going that way to do something I wasn't supposed to do and I turned around to come back and do what I am supposed to do. That's what repent means. And so your parents are supposed to talk to you about repenting of your sin and say, look, what you have to do is stop doing what was wrong and start doing what God said was right. And to help you do that, they make up some of the rules for you and they explain some of those rules to you. Now there's something else I need to say about dad and mom and what they were called to do from this passage. Dad and mom are supposed to teach you these things when they get up in the morning... And when they go to bed at night, and when they sit in the house, and when they walk down the road, they're supposed to teach you these things all the time. All the time. Do you know that your parents were called by God to be examples to you of how to live before God righteously? Of how you're supposed to live and behave? They were called to be examples... Your smile's nice. I'd like to see it. Okay? Practical example of some of the discipline that sometimes has to be done. 
And I'll do it again if you keep turning around. Your parents are called to be examples to you of what God says people are supposed to behave like. Your parents are supposed to show you by the way they live what you're supposed to be like when you grow up. Now, your parents have to explain repentance to you. And they have to show repentance to you. And there's some part of repentance that I think we need to talk about further. And to talk about that, we have to turn to John chapter 3. But I'm not going to read John 3.16. Because what I want to talk about happens before then. Or should I say it happens before then in a paragraph. But the paragraph should go all the way to verse 21. We forget the first 15 verses of the paragraph most of the time. It has been said that this is the most abused passage of Scripture in the Bible. And that's because we start at verse 16 instead of at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees whose name was Nicodemus, and he was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for nobody can do these marvelous things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's already grown up? He cannot go back into his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be surprised that I said to you, you have to be born again. The wind blows where it wants to. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak what we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall, I how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended to heaven but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, the, another part of what your parents are required to teach you is what does it mean to have your sins forgiven? to be saved, to be born, well, they know about that, and to be born again. I brought along some things to help me with this part of the lesson. What is this? Rose. It's a rose. Is it alive? No, why isn't it alive? Because I cut it. It's dead. It doesn't have any roots at all. It can't live. It isn't all the way dead yet. If it was all the way dead, it would look like this. And in a day or so, it will. Because it's dead, it just hasn't decomposed yet. It hasn't rotted away to this. But it will. It's pretty. It's got a nice long stem. It smells nice. 
If your dad were to give your mom some of these, your mom would be real happy, unless she's allergic to roses. But being pretty doesn't make it stay alive, does it? Can't. This is a weed. It's a particularly noxious weed. I went looking for it and I found it. When I was growing up, I knew all about those things. They grew in my father's yard and I had to mow it. And the lawnmower didn't like to cut them. I used to have to cut it two or three times before I could get it cut right. It's kind of saggy now because about an hour ago or a little less, I cut it. And it's dead too. It's a tough weed. It took my knife to cut it. I have a small knife. It's a tough weed, but it's dead. Will it grow again? No. If I bring out a flower pot, and if I put it in, will it grow? Why not? Because it doesn't have any roots. And without roots, a plant can't live. If I put this guy, this pretty rose, if I put him in here, will he grow? No. Doesn't have roots. What's this? It's petunia, but it's a plant with roots and flowers. Will it live? Hopefully, at least. It's got roots. So if I put it in here, it'll live because it has roots. It can't live without roots. The roses can't. The weeds can't. The petunia can't. But the petunia has roots, and so it can live. How about you? You don't have roots. But do you realize that as far as Jesus is concerned... You have to have roots too before you can live. Because you were born without roots. You were born without roots. You were born kind of like this. You know what this is? No. It's an almond, but it's a seed. It grows on a tree. Does this look like a tree? No. No. What has to happen for this thing to become a tree? You have to plant it and water it. But does that make it grow? What makes it grow? God makes it grow roots and then it can grow. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that the seed that you put in the ground, it doesn't grow unless it dies. This thing has to die in order for the roots to come. Now, how are you going to die so that you can get roots, so that you can grow? Because Paul was using pictures and John was using a picture here for us. And I've been using a picture. How are you going to get roots? Do you think this so weed can say to itself, Self, I need roots. Grow roots. Can't do it. It's dead. When it's dead, it can't do anything. You ever seen a dead bird or a dead goldfish? They don't do anything, do they? 
If you tell him to swim right, can that goldfish swim right? No, he's dead. He's dead. He can't do anything. And Paul said about us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Just as Jesus talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus was a Jew. He was one of the people who'd been circumcised when he was a baby. And he was a member of the covenant. He was all of these part of the church. He was even a ruler in the church. Maybe something that we would call an elder. He's probably part of the Sanhedrin. But Jesus said to him, You're dead. You have to be born again. And a message that your parents have to tell you is that you are dead and have to be born again too. Now that's not because your parents want to say to you, All right now, when you realize you're born again, then what you have to do is you have to repeat after me and you want to ask Jesus into your heart. No. Because even if I told this weed to grow roots, and even if I told it what to say, it couldn't do it. Neither can you. In order for you to get roots, you have to be born all over again. You have to die. What has to happen, though, is not that your body has to die, but that your mind and your heart, they have to die. And they die this way. The Holy Spirit comes, and the Holy Spirit makes you realize that you've been sinful. And makes you realize that God is ready to punish you. That's what Paul said to the people in Athens. God has set a day for judgment by His Son, Jesus Christ, when He's going to punish the world. And everybody said, well, what do we do? And Paul said, you turn away from your sins. You repent. But they can't repent. They're dead. They can repent if they've been made alive again by the Holy Spirit first give you an example. In John chapter 11, Jesus goes and He comes to Mary and Martha's house after Lazarus has died. And they're all sad. Jesus, if you'd gotten here, He wouldn't have died. I just know You could have made Him better. Jesus said, come on, He'll live. Let's go out to the tomb. So they go out to the tomb. They get to the tomb. And Jesus says, roll the stone away from the door. And somebody taps him on the shoulder and says, uh, he's been in there four days. If you open that door, you aren't going to like what you find. Because he's rotting. He's dead. Jesus says, roll the stone away. And the guy says, well, okay. Maybe he's got no sense of smell. <laughs> roll the stone away. Jesus walks up to the door of the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. Can Lazarus come out? Not if he's still dead. But he isn't still dead. That's right. He's been made alive again, and that's what makes him able to come out. That's what the Holy Spirit has to do to you. He has to make you alive again. And no amount of magic words that your mom and dad teach you to say is going to make that happen. But it will happen when the Holy Spirit decides to make it happen in you. And then you will realize about your sins and you will turn away from your sins and you will grow roots. And you will live. And some of you will blossom as if you are roses. And some of you may be more useful plants than roses. And some of you 
apologies uh, and consideration of Dr. McHarg included, maybe small flowers in the desert that I understand are pretty if you can find them. But then you will begin to grow. And that's what your mom and dad have been praying for since you were born. In fact, that's why your mom and dad stood up in front of the church, probably before you can remember it, and said to the pastor when he said, Will you promise to pray with and for your child and raise your child in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, in the teaching and the discipline of the Lord? Will you promise to do that? And your parents said, Yes. And then the pastor took some water and he put it on your head and he baptized you. Your parents and the church has been praying that the day will come when God will give you roots since that happened. And that's part of what your parents are looking for in your life. Sometimes you may think, Mom and Dad are never happy with me. They won't be. Until you have the roots that make you grow into the Christian like this rose grew to have a blossom. They've been praying that you would get those roots and that you would begin to grow. And they've been teaching you so that you would know what right and wrong was so that when God's Spirit began to move in you, it would be as easy as possible for you to realize what you had done and to turn away from your sin and to confess your faith and your trust in Jesus. But there's something else that I need to say too. Because it's something else that may make your parents cry a lot. And for some cases, like in my own family right now, your parents may cry an awful lot. This is from Romans chapter 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ and I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I wish that I could myself be accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose the fathers are, and from whom is Christ, according to the flesh, who is God, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as if the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be called. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was also Rebekah. And when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Jacob, though the twins were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to His choice might stand, not because of works, because, but because of the one who chooses, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. And it was written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What happens if somebody in your family who was baptized and your parents said that they would try to teach them to learn to know the Lord and they would discipline him and they would train him as best they could. What happens if he doesn't, doesn't get roots from the Holy Spirit? What happens? 
Did God fail? Paul says, no, God didn't fail. But your parents have to teach you one other thing, at least. And that is that the way we get roots is that work of the Holy Spirit. And that work of the Holy Spirit is not something that mom or dad can make happen. And it's not something that happens because your dad's a pastor. And it's not something that happens because your dad is a big man in the church or because your dad is president of a company or because your dad makes $100 million a year or even because he's the greatest dad in the whole world. It happens because God wants it to. You see, your parents also need to teach you that it's God who chooses. It's God who does everything that happens in our world. The reason that we need to remember that and learn that is that God tells us to teach the people who live around us, the people we work with, and the people in our families to teach them all what God said they were supposed to do. But He didn't say that we would be able to make them live in Christ. He said only He can. And so when someone grows and becomes a Christian and he has faith in Jesus Christ and he grows up, and let's say he begins to, be, to learn to be a pastor like I did. And some people might say, well, you're studying to be a preacher and so you're supposed to be holier than the rest of us or you think you're holier than the rest of us. Uh-uh. Because your parents ought to be teaching you that that only means that you are humbled because there wasn't any reason why God did this to you except that God wanted to. Jacob and Esau were twins. They were not identical twins, but they were twins. And they were born at the same time, give or take 20 minutes. And they had the same experiences in the womb, in mommy's tummy, just like each other did. No problem. But did they ever grow up to be different kids? And that happened because God is the one who gives us what He wants us to have. And so your parents ought to be teaching you not to be proud, but to be humble. To be thankful that God has given you the things that He's given you. Who is it that can actually come to believe in Jesus Christ? Those who are given roots by God. Who are the ones who are going to get those roots? The ones that God chooses. Because God is the one who loves His people enough to die on the cross for them. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How will I know that I'm getting roots? Will I suddenly feel things growing out of the bottom of my feet? Will my ears turn green? No. But I'll be doing the things that I normally do, beating up my brother. I used to beat up my brother all the time. I was bigger than he was. He was the only person I could beat up. I used to beat up my brother. When I began to grow roots, I stopped beating up my brother because I said, you know, this isn't nice. It's not even kind. And God wouldn't like it either. And I shouldn't do it. And that's how you'll know that you're beginning to get roots. That's how you'll know that the Spirit of God is beginning to work in your heart. Does God really love you? Yes. 
God really loves all of the people who are in the world, especially those who are part of His covenant, especially those who have been baptized. But He doesn't necessarily love them enough to give them roots. That's something that He does specially. But I was baptized. Doesn't that mean that God has to do this for me? No. What your baptism meant that you got lots of benefits. You got lots of benefits because your dad probably spent his money more wisely than some other people do, and so you had more food in the house and more clothes, and things were more comfortable for you. And your mom and dad were probably kinder to each other, so you didn't see them beating each other up. And they were probably nicer to you because they spanked you instead of beating you. There's a difference between the two. And because they disciplined you instead of letting you do whatever you want. Thank you. I needed another example. Please. Your parents were a good example to you. Your home didn't move every two weeks because they weren't paying the rent. You learned God's Word from them. You had all of those blessings. But there were people who even had all of those blessings and ate manna. Manna was bread that God sent down from heaven. And they even ate manna. And God didn't save them. You see, what we need to be in big people's words, we need to be converted. That means changed. That means like the seed, we have to die and we have to become something else. This doesn't look like a tree. When it dies, something will grow that does look like a tree. Then the seed's been converted. It's been changed. That's what converted means. Changed. We have to be justified. That means that Jesus Christ has to stand in front of us when God says, boy, look at all those sins. And Jesus steps in front of us and says, you don't see them now. And so it needs to be just as if I never sinned. And we need to be sanctified. That means made to look like Jesus Christ. We need to be changed as we grow so that we begin to look more and more like Jesus Christ. When I was little, uh, I didn't have a beard. And underneath my beard is a big dimple in my chin. Now my father has a little dimple in his chin. And as I grew, people knew by the dimple in my chin that I was my father's son. And as I grew and as I grew and as I grew, I got to look more and more like my father. Well, sanctification is kind of like that. As I grow up to begin to look like Jesus Christ. Sanctified means to be made holy like Jesus is holy. And that takes the work of God's Holy Spirit. Your parents have been commissioned by God to pray for that Holy Spirit's work and to teach you what you are responsible to do so that if God is merciful to you and when He is merciful to you and He begins to give you those roots, then you are more easily able to do what He said because you know it already. You've heard it. It's been in your mind. That's your parents' job for you. And if your parents are like I am, they pray for you every day. And they pray that God's Spirit will be gracious enough to them that they will be the good example to you.
and that they will teach you so that when you are beginning to grow in Christ after you've gotten roots, they can help you to grow. They can fertilize you, if you will, so that you grow better because they teach you by their example and by their words. Pray with me. Lord, we come before you tonight and we plead. We plead that you will be faithful to to your promises. And we plead, Lord, that you will look upon these who are part of your covenant and that you will, as you have said, more likely call them to repentance, more likely give them the roots that will make them grow in Christ and live forever than you will others. So, Father, we plead for that. We wish we could hold up to you as parents that we had done the excellent job in teaching and training and that that our children could look at us and could see what righteousness really was and they could begin to try to imitate it. Or at least we would be so consistent in our discipline that they would hear and they would understand when they are sinning and that you would use one of those times of discipline to call them to repentance. But, Father, our hands have not been that good and our lives have not been that good and so we plead for the grace of your Spirit. Give us again that which we do not deserve. And, Lord Jesus, please, bring to birth the second time our little ones. For the honor of your name we pray it. Amen. Mr. Pontier. We're a little bit early. I don't know exactly what you would like to do. Mr. Sanchez suggests that we sing 633. 633, huh? Let's sing one song, 633, and we'll get out of